Welcome, listener friends, um, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by your host, <laughs> Richard Osler. I guess you knew that. Uh, my guest on today's podcast, more importantly, joining me from her home in Colorado Springs, Colorado, is Heidi Bartle. Welcome to the podcast, Heidi. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Heidi is an author, and she's going to talk about her book, but more broadly, just to introduce Heidi, she's an active Latter-day Saint, a mother of five kids, grew up in Utah and Arizona, has a degree in health sciences from BYU. Her kids are roughly now age 10 to 20, but back in 2017, that's five years ago, she opened up to her kids about her own journey with depression. Um, with the advice of a therapist. And she's going to talk about her journey with um, depression, including bipolar. Um, She was diagnosed in 2012. And there's a whole story around a journey with um, mental health and depression and bipolar. But Heidi will talk about that. She's also going to talk about talking to her kids about it, um, which is a unique part of the story. And this, the title of her book, and maybe I said this, I can't remember, but the title of her book, and we'll link to it in the show notes at Amazon, is When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression. And this is a child's book. It's got wonderful pictures. It's a short read. But um, talking about a parent's journey or a loved one's journey to children about mental health is a needed um, book, a needed podcast. So I just get so tender-hearted when someone comes on the podcast like Heidi and is going to bravely share her story. Um, I just kind of want to reach through the Zoom camera and just give Heidi a big hug for her courage to do this um, because I just sense a lot of you need to hear Heidi's story. And our joint prayer is the things Heidi is going to share will help you in your unique journey, especially those of you that are working through mental health challenges or issues, whatever the right vocabulary is, and those of you that are helping others, and the need to reduce stigma and shame around this topic. So with that, Heidi, is that okay for an introduction? Thank you so much. That was beautiful. I hug you back (laughs) through my screen. (laughs) So um, I'll just kind of let you go and tell us your story. Okay. Well, I'd like to preface this with If someone had told me five years ago that I would be speaking in a very public way about my mental illness and the book that I wrote about depression, (laughs) I just would not have believed it at all. (laughs) This is quite a departure from where I was five years ago when I wrote this book. To start at the beginning, I had a very happy childhood. I had wonderful parents, um, siblings, and friends who loved me and supported me. I could do what I wanted to do, you know, get an education, participate in clubs, do sports. I was very musical. I had the normal ups and downs of life. Of course, there was always, you know, little high school drama, whatever, but I had a good life. So when I was about 15 or 16, I started experiencing these waves of sadness and they didn't make any sense. I didn't know what to do with them. And I looked at friends who were experiencing what I consider to be legitimate trials, like a divorce or a major health concern or money problems. I didn't have those issues. And so I didn't think I had any right to be sad. 
So in the absence of an explanation like depression, which is what it was, I just blamed myself for those feelings, assumed I wasn't trying hard enough and sort of had all this negative self-talk. Didn't have a mental illness vocabulary at all. So I went into college and I went to BYU and loved my college years, loved those those times, those experiences, met wonderful people. I had a job. I had heavy course load. I did very well in school and didn't have too much depression in college. I met and married my husband. We did not have a pre-marriage conversation about the mental illness that I experienced because I didn't know what it was. I didn't have a label for it. I wasn't that worried about it. I was a health sciences major and we didn't have classes about it that I remember. Of course, I could be forgetting things, but, and I'm sure that now a degree in health sciences at BYU would certainly include some information about mental illness, but I, I didn't get it at school. I didn't have education from family or friends and I'm not faulting anyone, but I just didn't know what it was. So I graduated in 2000 with my degree in health sciences. My husband graduated in December 2001 with his master's degree, and we moved off to Portland to start our post-college life. We had a brand new baby, and everything was so good. We loved where we moved. We We found friends quickly, and we loved the area. We bought a home within a year things were great on paper. I was so sad. I remember not long after we closed on our house, sitting in the house with my one-year-old son, playing with him, watching it rain out the window and just crying myself, thinking, why am I sad? My life is perfect. It's perfect. How come I feel this way? I just didn't I didn't understand. Fortunately, at that time, my depression ebbed and flowed. And I kind of noticed that it was affected by circumstances. You know, if there's something stressful, then I struggled or the weather eventually became a problem for me in Portland. And hormones definitely played a part. We continued to expand our family. It was after my fourth child that. I had a name for what I was feeling. It was depression. She was born in 2009. And I confided to a friend via email that I was depressed. And I felt like I was confessing to murder. (laughs) Like this deep, dark, horrible secret. How could she ever still love me as a friend? (laughs) It seems so silly now. But that is absolutely how I felt. I had a name for the depression, but I also carried the stigma and the shame of a mental illness that I felt like I should be able to control and take care of. I still felt like, even even though academically I knew it was an illness, I felt like it was a character flaw. And I should be able to exercise or diet or spend time with friends or read my scriptures, and it would be better. And I couldn't, I was doing all the things and it wasn't getting better. My friend really encouraged me to get help, but I didn't want to take medication. I was nursing a baby and that was my crutch. I can't take medication. I'm nursing a baby. 
I didn't know that it probably would have been better for my parenting to give my baby a bottle and take an antidepressant. (laughs) I didn't appreciate that at the time. I didn't understand it for a long time that it was okay to take medication. But um, I had one more pregnancy a couple of years later. That baby is now almost 11. And it was a horrific pregnancy medically. There, I had hyperemesis and I had to have nurses come to my house. I had IVs. I eventually got a pit line. I got infected. I was in the hospital. It was very dramatic. Wow. And so I was congratulating myself toward the end. Look at what we survived. We've, we've almost done this. She's almost here. We're both alive. That was my baseline for success. <laughs> we are still breathing. <laughs> and I, I was at a point where I could start doing a few things again, just physically. We're just talking physically. I could accomplish some tasks. And I had some, some of my son's friends over for a little summer party. And at the end of the party, one of the mothers came to pick up her son and she said, Heidi, I am so worried about you. I really would like to encourage you to see a doctor. I think you have depression. Looking back, I can think, wow, what an amazing friend to notice such a sensitive issue and to approach it in a graceful way and to really express concern and support. Well, at the time I was totally offended because couldn't she see all that I could do? That's, that's what I was focused on, what I could do. And she could see how I was feeling and how I was functioning in the world. And she was concerned. She had every right to be concerned. A few months later, I had ignored her advice and I totally crashed after my baby was born. But um, this time I got help. It it took a friend sitting on the couch holding my hand to make the phone call to call the doctor. And I thought that was the big step toward healing, calling the doctor. I didn't appreciate that there are 52 medications for depression. And we had to figure out which one of them fit me and the right dose. And what about side effects? And each trial period is six weeks long. It was kind of a torturous, maybe nine months of trying to figure out the meta, the medicine piece. I quickly graduated from a primary care doctor to a psychiatrist and it just took a long time. But one time, finally there was a medication that worked and I was feeling happy again. And I felt like myself and I had energy and we I thought, Oh, this is it. Let's move forward. What I didn't understand was I wasn't feeling normal feelings. I was feeling mania. I had spiraled into a manic phase of bipolar depression and was diagnosed about a year after my baby was born um, with bipolar disorder. I have type two, which is less severe. Um, For me, it is a really high energy, don't need sleep, let's start all the projects, Um, kind of, that's what my mania looks like. I'm not running naked through the streets, which is what they show you on TV. But the hardest thing for me with that diagnosis was the stigma attached to bipolar. 
I had just started to come to terms with having a mental illness called depression, but lots of people had depression. Yeah. That felt more manageable. It felt more real, understandable, but bipolar did not. The prognosis was less savory, shall we say, and the management is totally different with uh, bipolar is really different to take care of than depression is. I take multiple medications rather than just one antidepressant. And it's going to be a dance the rest of my life, figuring that out or or maintaining it. I'm definitely in kind of a maintenance phase right now, but that's not what I could see 10 years ago. It's been almost 10 years since my diagnosis. And I, at that point I could not imagine stability. I didn't know what that could possibly mean. And I spend probably 80% of my mentally ill days in depression and maybe 20% in mania. So depression is definitely what characterizes most of my moods. <laughs> There's kind of like a low simmer of depression all the time. But I was kind of experiencing some rough depression in 2017. And I had started seeing a new therapist and she was really pushing me to talk to my kids about my depression. And I was really pushing back saying, no way, because if I tell my kids that I'm broken, then they won't love me anymore. That was the tape in my head that I still wasn't past the notion that I was not a whole person anymore because I had this illness. And I was so convinced that anyone who knew this about me would run the other way and not be able to handle what was going on in my mind. (laughs) But she kept pushing. And one night I was at a soccer game with my kids. Uh, I think my 10-year-old was playing. And I remember so clearly looking over the mountains, the sun was setting. It was this just ideal fall evening, little crisp air. And I started thinking about, um, well, I realized that there were words in my mind and I kind of listened to what was going on and it was the words of a story. And then I realized it was my story. It was a mother who was depressed and it was about the impact on her kids and what she was going to do about it. And I realized, oh, this is what my therapist is asking me to do. This is how I'm going to talk to my kids. So I went home that night and I typed it all out, printed it up the next day, talked to my kids. I talked to my older kids and my little kids separately. We had a sweet little story time. And I told them what was going on with me. And they were so sweet and so compassionate. I remember my older daughter who, let's see, in 2017 would have been six, no, nine. (laughs) And she just, I cried and she reached over and she wiped my tears and she said, oh, mom, I'm so sad that you're sad. And we had these little moments, right? It was beautiful. So then I take my my little paper stapled book to my therapist just to get the gold star, right? Okay. I did the homework. Here you go. And she read it there in her office and she just about jumped out of her chair. She was so excited. She said, Heidi, the world needs this. You need to share 
this message with the world. And that was a whole different ball game than just talking to my kids. Like, <laughs> you mean I have to tell other people that I have depression? <laughs> and it took a little bit of time that I hired an artist and he brought it to life in such a beautiful way. And six months later, I self-published When Mommy Feels Sad. And that was a, it was a really cool process. I kind of grew up a lot during those months in sharing my story more to more people. I had to educate my editor (laughs) about what depression was because he didn't know and he didn't believe the book at first. (laughs) But in the years since I've decided that I, that having, there are benefits of having a quote unquote real publisher. And I decided to republish in 2022, this year. And so in April released a new edition that includes um, a glossary of terms and discussion questions and activities for students and families. And I think it really makes the book a resource for families who need to talk about this very common illness that afflicts so many adults. You looked like you wanted to ask a question. (laughs) I just am so grateful you're sharing this story. Keep sharing, keep talking, Heidi. (laughs) Well, I wanted to share one cool way you can use this book. So the illustrator is Nathan Allred. And he really knocked it out of the park. I'm so thrilled with these beautiful, very lifelike illustrations. It was very important to me to have characters in the book who were real people. A lot of children's books feature animals that talk or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I wanted real human beings. And friends of ours, our next door neighbors actually, were models for. The book. So it's sweet to have friends smiling. Well, not really smiling <laughs> in the book. Um, and one thing that Nathan suggested when we started was I had a list of eight emotions that the mother in the, in the book feels about her depression. She's frustrated. She feels guilty. She feels embarrassed, things like that. And I just had a list but he separated them onto eight separate pages. So each emotion has a page. The mother is portraying that emotion. There is a color to represent the emotion. And then there are a few words describing the emotion. And I just think it's so beautiful to spark conversations in that way. So you can look at the book and see the page that says, she felt disappointed why can't I control this? And she's got her head in her hands and the page is kind of yellow green. And so a parent could say, when I'm depressed, I feel disappointed. When have you felt disappointed? And even a young child can say, well, I was disappointed that I wasn't called on in class, or I felt disappointed when I got peanut butter and jelly in my lunchbox, or You know, there are many times that a child feels disappointed. And so a parent and a child can relate to each other through this emotion of disappointment. So the child doesn't have to know what it's like to experience depression. 
the child knows what it's like to feel disappointed. And so you can have this connection on their level that can be really meaningful. And there are eight of those. And there are lots of things in the book that are very relatable. You can see the mother lying in bed. How do you feel when I'm lying in bed? How does that make you feel? What do you think I'm feeling? So the illustrations really bring all of these concepts to life. And I love how much they add to that story. I agree. And um, my wife just happened to see the book before we started this podcast, and she just loved it. And um, the illustrations are terrific. Nathan Allred, if you're listening, um, great job of using your talent to bring life to this story in yeah. such a tender way. Um, it's been five years um, since you told your kids. And I, you know, we, I think our culture protects our kids, if that's the right language, from the reality of parents' lives. Um, talk about your relationship with your kids um, and, and any sort of surprise benefits that have become of this, you being vulnerable and honest and, did it, and it, just talk about the culture or what's the relationship with the kids, anywhere you want to go with that. Do some kids continue to talk about it? Some don't um, just share with our listeners what it's like to open up to kids about the reality of, um, of your road. Okay. Well, I have five children and they're all so different and they're especially different in how much they want to talk to me. <laughs> but my middle son, Gavin, was about 10 when I talked to him for the first time about my depression. And more than all of the other kids, he has wanted to keep talking about it. So we'd be standing in the kitchen or maybe at the park. So mom, how's your diagnosis going? Have you seen your therapist recently? How's your medication? He wanted to know. And it was through his questions that I had to become comfortable giving him the answers. I knew when he asked those questions that it was this moment that I could either brush him off and leave the room or be open and honest about it. Sometimes answering his questions mean, meant that I cried because I shared a real feeling with him about whatever it was. But it was also so great because I could say, all right, I'm leaving you with a babysitter. I'm going to go see my therapist now. And it wasn't a big deal. And I'm not afraid to take my medication in front of my kids. I wouldn't be afraid to take my medication in front of my kids if I was taking something for allergies or asthma or diabetes right? I wouldn't be. It's fine that my brain needs some support. It just does. And we've really kind of normalized these things. So I really encourage people when they're talking to their kids to use the real words, say psychiatrist, say medication, say therapist, say EMDR, if that's what you're doing. Talk to your kids with real words. We've kind of normalized that. I mean, there's sort of this movement of talk to your kids about their real anatomy, you know, use the real words for their anatomy. And the same rules apply for this situation. Don't make it weird. Just say the words. And if you're okay with it or you pretend to be okay with it, 
It will come. Fake it till you make it is a real thing in this game. You can pretend that you're fine talking to your kids about your bipolar disorder. And then all of a sudden you are okay talking to your kids about bipolar disorder because it's just something that you have. It's just, I have learned that I'm more than my illness. I am, I actually try really hard not to say I have or I am bipolar. I say I have bipolar because I have it. It doesn't have me, you know? And that that distinction has been really important for me. I kind of made a decision. I am not my illness. And sometimes having bipolar means that I take more naps than my neighbors or I need more breaks from society <laughs> than my peers. And that's okay. They don't have bipolar. I, it's just how I deal with things. I've learned to just give myself a break if I have to do things differently than everybody else. It's a really, really good segment. Um, listeners, I wrote down a couple things um, just as Heidi was talking. Um, the difference between I am bipolar and I have bipolar. Um, that was pretty powerful what you just shared with our listeners. And earlier you said, before you were thinking about talking to your kids, if I wrote this down correctly, you, your worry was if I tell my kids I'm broken, they won't love me anymore. Absolutely. That's, that's what a, I thought. That's a pretty honest thing. And I think um, that that shame and stigma keeps us from opening up to the loved ones in our life about the realities of our life. And mm-hmm. culture drives that and the need to sort of you know, I don't know, but a lot, it's hard to open up and, and I've never really had a podcast or parents opening up to their kids about their mental illness. Um, and I think it's, you know, we have six kids and all of our kids process information differently. And it's interesting. Your one son that continues to have the conversation. And I think children can have age appropriate conversations and learn the vocabulary and the medicine. It's possible, and you would know this, and this may come out as your kids age up, that they sense that you were sad. And now the the things they were playing in their mind about why mom's sad, maybe it's because I'm not a good kid or I'm not doing my jobs or mom doesn't love me. The fact you're open to your kids about why you're sad makes them not think, oh, oh, this isn't about me. It's not that mom is sad about me or doesn't love me. Mom's just like a parent working through some of her own stuff. And now, now I can understand the total picture here because I'm sensing mom's kind of sad sometimes. I don't know if any of that's come out and you being open with your kids. I don't know that anyone has articulated that to me. I think it's true for sure. At the beginning, I mentioned that in the absence of better information, I just blamed it on myself. (laughs) And I think that kids do that. When I was pregnant with my fifth baby, I was throwing up so violently that I couldn't function at five weeks. So, but we kept saying, we're going to hide it from our kids because, you know, what if I miscarry? We didn't want to talk about it. And so we didn't say anything to the kids. Finally, about 10 weeks, we told the kids, okay, mom's having a baby. That's why she's throwing up. And we learned. 
my oldest kids thought I was dying. They thought I was dying in the absence of better information. They put together the only thing that they knew that sick people die. They didn't know that pregnancy could be causing this because they hadn't seen it before. So we thought we were doing our kids a favor by concealing the problem. And we were just kidding ourselves. It wasn't true. We, we did a misstep there. And I don't think we ruined their lives, but we were horrified to discover that our silence had been causing our children pain. And I think that talking to my kids about depression was the same thing. It was so much better to talk to them and tell them, give them words for what they were seeing. And honestly, for what they could one day experience themselves. Right now, I have, for a short time, four of my children are still at home. I have an almost missionary. But so we have different conversations now. Instead of spending a lot of time talking about my mental illness, we talk about what signs to look for in themselves. And I've had a talk with my oldest child. He he was definitely in a funk. And I said, I see that you are withdrawing from activities that you love. You are sleeping way more often than is necessary. And you are you're generally just in a low mood. Said, do you see that about yourself? He said, Oh, I do see that about myself. And in his case, it wasn't depression. He was just in a phase and he stood up and moved on and, you know, didn't look back. But it was easy for me to say because we had already had an initial conversation about depression and many, not just one, but it was easy for me to say, Hey, man, I think you're depressed. Let's get some help. And we could just jump right into the conversation when it's needed rather than here's the history of depression. And this is really awkward. You know, we didn't have to do any of that stuff because we had already done it. And to your earlier question about how this affects my kids on kind of a global scale, I have a child who recently approached me about something that I would have died before talking to my mom about. And to, uh, I want to preserve her privacy, but it was a private issue. And she just walked up to me and she looked me in the eye and she says, here's the issue. What should I do? And we, I was still squirming inside. I was like, really, you're talking to me about this? But I was also saying, oh my gosh, you're talking to me about this. This is fabulous. You didn't go to the internet or your friends. You came to me. And I think that it's because we talk about hard things. We're not perfect. And, you know, I'm sure there are lots of things we miss, but it was a victory moment in the last month that I immediately attributed to talking about my mental illness because we talk about hard things at our house and it's okay. You can just say it. (laughs) And that, uh, it made me feel so good as a mom that she could do something that I could not do at her age, that she could say words and approach subjects 
in such a plain and unflustered way. She was just so cool about it. Good for you. <laughs> Made me really happy. That's a, that's a golden segment, Heidi. And um, there's vulnerability brings vulnerability. And I think one of the cultures we can really create, and those of you that are just starting your family culture, um, that's a payday moment. That's a victory to use your language is your vulnerability um, in an appropriate and healthy and wonderful way is created, you know, this byproduct in your family culture that your kids are safe opening up to you. And um, that is not easy for kids to open up to parents, especially when parents often are sort of cast themselves or really are, or culture casts them as um, in a way that makes it hard for kids to approach them with the realities of their life. And so I would guess that's going to continue to happen in your family culture, um, which is a really good thing. Cause I think one of the greatest parent paydays is when our kids can open up to us about the realities of their life and we can walk with them. And they know we're safe for them and we can handle hard subjects because we've been talking about hard subjects. Um, so that is a beautiful family moment. I love that. Yeah. Talk about lessons that you've learned about yourself and mental illness. I've hit on a couple. Okay. Um, there really is no shame in or stigma in having an illness. It's like asthma or allergies. You have a doctor. You see the doctor for checkups and you take medicine and you manage your condition. Mental illness is the same way. Um, Jane Clayson Johnson calls it a brain illness. Why don't we call it a brain illness? That's a great idea. Just like you have a heart illness or you have a leg illness or a kidney illness, you have a brain illness and it's no big deal. Um, <laughs> I also have learned that getting help is the best choice. If I had, I was trying to think of some other medical conditions I've had and how ludicrous it would be to not get help. I've had kidney stones, which honestly rival natural childbirth for me. If I had kidney stones and I'm writhing in agony on the ground, which is how I manifest kidney stones. How silly is it to not, to not go to the doctor, to not get help, to not have treatment? We would never do that with a physical illness. Hiding an illness or just refusing to get help, just it perpetuates shame, it delays treatment, it prevents education, it stops forward progress. At least that's what it did for me. Completely stopped. I was unable to move forward until I got help. I've also learned that therapy is awesome. I have had a number of therapists over the years and I've learned great things from them. It's not nearly as scary as I thought it was going to be. I thought we would sit and you know, analyze my childhood and find all these horrible things and whatever. And really what a therapist does is help you function in your daily life, help you with strategies. And I've learned things from them. Like my worth is not tied to my to-do list. If I don't get a lot done in a day, it's okay. That's great. 
I'm still valuable if I don't take my kids to Disneyland or clean my bathroom or make dinner. I'm still valuable. It's okay. That maybe some people don't have to learn that from a therapist, but I had to learn it from a therapist. Um, I've learned how to stand up for myself. I've learned how to ask for what I need, how to shake off other people's silly comments, how to process a traumatic event. I recently had a traumatic medical thing happen. And I called my therapist that night and said, when can you see me? I need EMDR. (laughs) I need to process this traumatic thing. I knew that she would help me and that she could help me get over this hump way faster than I could do by myself. And it was true. After our session, it was over. I was done with that scary thing that happened. Um, And it was from from a therapist that I learned to say bipolar is something I have, not who I am. And I'm so grateful for that knowledge, that understanding. And I had to grow into it. She didn't just say it one time and I was on board. I really had to figure it out for myself, but I appreciate having that help. Yeah. I love that. Um, I don't want to share too much of my story here, listeners, because I want to stay focused on Heidi. But in this book I wrote about improving Latter-day Saint culture, one of the chapters is better understanding mental illness and suicide. And I'm honest there that I've been to a therapist twice in my life, once during my teenage years and once serving as a YSA bishop. And um, I also write in here um, to be, I'm reading now from my book, to be honest, I felt shame wondering if the YSAs in our ward would think their own bishop was so weak that he needed to seek treatment from the therapist. I was glad my therapist's office was in a different area of town so no one would see me walk into the building. Since being released from my calling, including that I should have felt no shame. I should have, listeners should have heard Heidi's podcast a long time ago. (laughs) Anyway, I I concluded I should have felt no shame for my mental health changes because they were not a spiritual weakness. And my diagnosis did not impact my ability to serve the members. If I had realized this, I might have been receptive to spiritual promptings to share my own mental health in appropriate situations like Elder Holland did to help others walking a similar road and let them know I'm a safe person to discuss their situation. So there's parallels in our story. You mm-hmm. bravely opening up to your own kids and me not opening up to my wife. <laughs> well, I did plenty of not opening <laughs> up for a long time. And um, I do remember walking into my therapist's office, Heidi, and it was in a completely different te- part of town. And I just remember the walk through the long open parking lot. And I thought, what if one of them saw me? What would I say as I'm walking this? And so that's where I was in 2015, 2014. Um, So I wish I'd listened to this type of podcast then because I do think of, you know, if your kids could all come on this podcast in 20 years, I think they're all going to have an individual podcast of how you being open with them as kids have significantly helped them. I'm thinking of your kids that may serve missions and they may have companions that they will know what they will have tools that aren't taught generally in mission prep or even in preach my gospel um, tools. You've taught them that will be so helpful for their companions. 
And they may just be the answer to prayer from their parents for that missionary that's really struggling. And one of your kids may be able to answer their prayer and just understand and love and support and get at the need of help if they've been undiagnosed to that point. Um, One of the chapters of the book is an undiagnosed son with mental health issues. And it wasn't until his mission that that sort of came out. So that's one of, I just think, the rest of the, the heart. What's it, Paul Harvey? You're all too old to hear that. Um, Paul <laughs> the rest Hardy's, of the story? Yes, Heidi's not too old to hear that. But <laughs> the rest of the story is going to be your kids and your posterity and the gift you've given to your kids, their future spouse, and your future grandkids, um, and the culture you've created, not just around mental health issues, but like your daughter and just other conversations you're going to have. But I want to get back to your story. Just, you know, kind of got an outline here. So I'll just kind of let you continue wherever you want to pick up from. Okay. I would love to talk about how to help someone who's experiencing mental illness. And uh, Richard has kindly said that he would answer some questions for me to uh, kind of illustrate a point. Uh, What would you do if your neighbor broke his leg? Well, I'd call 911 if it was really bad, but I'd certainly encourage him or her to get to the doctor, and I wouldn't create any shame or stigma around a broken leg. (laughs) Okay. What task do you think would be hard for someone with a broken leg that you might be able to alleviate? Well, go walk with them if they're, you know, on crutches or... um, do chores around their home that they're not able to do. Okay. It's easy to kind of connect the dots generally. And even if someone's where this is going. (laughs) And even if someone's an early release missionary and walked in to my congregation with a broken leg, there would be no shame or stigma. I go, well, duh, you broke your leg. You need to come home and have surgery in a cast. Mm -hmm. Um, Welcome home. um, Brothers, elder, sister. What can I do to help you? Right. That's an awesome parallel. But a lot of times missionaries come home and they don't have a physical injury. And what do you do? Sometimes it feels like you don't know what to do, right? Right. And this is kind of the point that I'm uh, interested in making here. Let's just do one more. What if your ward member had the flu? Well, I would... um... (laughs) I would bring them hot soup. I think of flu and hot soup for some reason, because yeah, that's maybe what I like. Um, text them, call them, um, just tell them we love them and, you know, know okay. that it's kind of a short-term thing. But you'd know what to do because you have a lot of people with flu in your lives and you've had flu yourself. So you generally know what to do for someone with flu. Right. Okay. So you've, with both of these examples, you've talked about connection kind of emotionally. Mm-hmm. sometimes physically being together. Um, it's a little different with an injury versus an illness, whether you actually want to be with them, but also supporting them in tasks that are hard for them. Right. Right. So what's the, what's the difference between supporting a friend or family member with one of these physical illnesses or injuries and supporting a friend or family member with a mental illness? It's a good question. I think there's um, fear. Um, unknown what to say, um, what not to say. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, including me, have no tr- clinical, no training, no education in this space. And so uh, I, it's harder for me, even with all the people like you that have come on the podcast, um, 
to know how best to support someone. I think my earlier self would have said, they don't want to talk about it. Um, I'm not going to talk about it, but I've learned that for trusted friends, just like in your life, to, and especially on one-on-one situations where you can ask open-ended questions, mm-hmm. most people want to talk about the realities of their life. Mm-hmm. And then you can do the things to offer them support. Absolutely. I think the key is finding out what's needed. Um, I would submit that a lot of the things you would do for someone with the flu also apply for someone with depression. (laughs) In my, my experience with depression, someone who would bring dinner would be the hero of the year. That would be a huge thing. Um, and maybe it's just me and, you know, you can, figure out what works for your family and friends. But a lot of the things that are hard for someone who is physically sick are hard for someone who is mentally ill also. I'd like to give a couple of examples of ways that people helped me. So I was called as the Relief Society president in 2015. And I experienced terrible depression during that calling. I loved serving the ward and I loved the experience, but it was super hard because my mental health was kind of, there's a lot going on at home and I was very overwhelmed. So I assigned myself um, excellent visiting teachers and they came the first time as I knew they would, (laughs) they showed up. Right. And I just kind of invited them to sit down in the living room. And they said, um, we really just want to help you. What can we do to help you? And I kind of hummed and hawed and they said, could we do the dishes? And we went in the kitchen, which was a total disaster. And we cleaned my kitchen for an hour. And then the next time they came, we folded something like nine loads of laundry. And we alternated between cleaning the kitchen and loading or folding laundry, depending on what I needed from them at the time. It was the most wonderful blessing in my life. I thought I just needed someone to listen to me complain. (laughs) But they came and they cleaned. They helped me with the thing that I could not keep up with. I could either be a mom and someone who cleaned the house, or a mom and a Relief Society president, or a Relief Society president who cleaned her house. I could not do all three and I let the house go. (laughs) And another person who helped me with that was the stake relief society president. I went in for my, just a regular meeting with her one-on-one and as I was leaving and had, I had kind of laid out all the things in my personal life that were especially difficult. I told her about the depression. I told her I wasn't functioning very well. And she asked what I needed. And usually I would say, oh, nothing. I'm fine. Things are fine. But I said, I need the phone number of a chief cleaning lady. I thought Stake Relief Society president surely knows she has a network, right? She can find someone to clean my house. That was my request. She emailed me that night and said, I want to be your chief cleaning lady. And my fee is zero dollars. And I'll be there Wednesday. And for four months, she came every Wednesday and she cleaned my three bathrooms 
and she scrubbed my floor and she vacuumed my carpet every week. She couldn't fix my depression and she couldn't take my calling and she couldn't help the stuff in my family, but she cleaned my bathrooms. And I appreciated so much that she was willing to kind of push through my resistance of, oh, I don't need anything. It's really not that bad. Never mind. Like I totally backpedaled when she offered to come over because she was coming into the dirtiest places in my house. So, and it was just really hard for me. But the reason I'm telling these stories is to say that ordinary people can do extraordinary things when, when they're guided by the spirit. And those women, those three women absolutely were guided by the spirit to ask the right questions, to be in the right place, to act when given direction. They really did amazing things. And they're remarkable women, but we're all that way. We all have the capacity to do this kind of thing for someone else. Maybe it's not on a grand scale. Maybe you clean a bathroom once. You don't have to do it every Wednesday for four months to make a difference, right? I really appreciate how much they helped by doing something really basic that had nothing to do with mental health. They didn't have to be trained, right? They didn't have to have experience. They didn't have to have any special knowledge of my life. They knew how to clean bathrooms and fold laundry and wash dishes. And so they did it. And it was a huge blessing for me. That's a great story. Um, I mean, your mind could have said, I'm the Relief Society president. I need to have it all together. I'm not going to. There was plenty of that in my brain. (laughs) I'm not going to open up to the Stake Relief Society president. I'm not going to open up to the people who are kind of, I have stewardship over my own ministering sisters. But this is the gospel of Jesus Christ you just taught us. You and you knew these ministering sisters would help you. Yeah. And you and you let them help you. Um, you let that stake release society present help you. There's something in our culture I don't have a word for that may be Puritan, but it's sort of like I'm okay. It's part of like being a strong Latter-day Saint to be okay and kind mm-hmm. of I can do this on my own. I remember my first missionary companion wanted to um, polish my shoes. It was just an act of service, and I wouldn't let him. And he, and he finally called me on it and said, "That's it's you're denying me blessings by not letting you be trying your shoes." And it was a powerful yeah. teaching moment from my trainer about letting people serve me. It's a smaller example, but it's a position of strength, Heidi not a position of weakness for you to allow people to come into your home and see those dirty bathrooms and be at peace enough and sure enough of who you are. You talk about worth. My worth is not tied to my to-do list. My worth is not tied to the cleanliness of my bathrooms. My worth is not tied to I have it all together at home. Um, That's pretty powerful. And when your worth is tied with your relationship with your heavenly father and grounded in understanding who you are. And I think it's easier to let people 
see you in these moments and you can then we can all help and heal each other that's pretty powerful uh my and you're the release society president and i think that that's that's kind of added dimension to this story not everybody needs to be release study president ask for help but some ways it was harder it's like maybe i'm connecting that since some of my biggest emotional issues happened during my ysa service and i thought wait a second i'm supposed to be the guy yeah and and i'm not feeling the guy so i wish i had done some of the stuff you did (laughs) keep sharing more stuff there's more on your list here All right. I would love to go back to something you said when you're reading from your book about, I don't remember the words, but feeling like you couldn't be used as a leader because you were struggling or something. I definitely had that feeling. Um, Not just when I was serving in that calling. I, I don't like to talk about being really society president because I don't want to seem like I was anybody important you know, like the, the title, the distinction really kind of bugs me, but it was the truth. That was, that was my calling at the time. But when I was serving as Relief Society president, I was experiencing this terrible depression and really struggled to feel the spirit when I was reading my scriptures, when I was saying my prayers, when I, all of these things, but God still used me. He used me every day. He would Tell me what to say when I was sitting on a couch with somebody who was upset. He would tell me where to be at the right moment when somebody needed something. He would would inspire lessons and all kinds of things during that time of service when I was so empty and depleted everywhere else. He still used me. And my next calling was a Sunday school teacher. I was teaching gospel essentials and I couldn't feel the spirit. It's like a hallmark. I think this is common for a lot of people who experience depression. They can't feel connected to God. They can't feel it in the temple. They can't feel it when they're reading scriptures or praying. Can't feel it in church. I I get that. I see you. (laughs) That is very common. And I'm trying to teach this important Sunday school class every week. And I was going through all the motions preparing. I love to teach. And so I, you know, would approach the best way I knew how, but it all just felt very flat. But every week during uh, the sacrament, I would say a prayer and I I would reserve my prayer for Sunday school for sacrament time, because I felt like it was the best chance I had for making a connection, for feeling a connection. The connection was always there. I just couldn't feel it. And every week without fail, there would be some little message, a scripture, a word, a song, something that I would write down and on my notes and then put away and do the rest of sacrament meeting. And then I would go to Sunday school and without fail, something wonderful would happen in Sunday school because of the thing that Heavenly Father gave me. So he can use us even when we feel totally useless. But we have to put ourselves in position to be used. You know, we still have to be saying the prayers and we still have to be reading the scriptures and we still have to go to the temple even when we can't feel it. 
And I stayed engaged with the church through mental illness, through not being able to feel the spirit because I kept doing all the things that it would have been so easy to walk away. Sacrament meeting was torturous with little kids. If there's no glimmer of the spirit (laughs) to keep you there, it's hot. It's so hard. And making small talk with well-meaning ward members, I felt like I had to fake it or completely fall apart. There was no in-between. Church was hard for years. I felt like I was on that straight and narrow path that we read about in First Nephi. And, but I was plopped down on the ground and reaching up and holding the iron rod and just crying. That was the image of me where I was in life for a really long time. And at the, at the time, I thought, look at that sad lady. That's all she can do. She can just sit there. Why isn't she moving forward? And I have since repented of that notion. I am so proud of myself for holding on when it was really, really hard. Um, I just kept doing all the stuff, even though it didn't always make sense, even though I couldn't feel it. I am a person who feels very deeply, obviously. <laughs> I, and so when I can't feel the spirit, I just don't even feel like myself. I feel like I get a lot of messages a lot, all the time. And so when I'm not having that constant feedback from Heavenly Father, I just don't feel like myself. So looking back, I'm just really grateful that I went to the temple more often and not less when I was having a hard time. And interestingly, I was in a, I work in the baptistry in the Denver temple a few times a month. And I had an interview with one of the temple presidency members. And the first question he asked me is, why do you go to the temple? Or why do you come to the temple? Because we were there. And I was a little taken aback. I don't, uh, why do I come to the temple? And it's because there's light there when I feel dark. And even if I can't feel the light, it's there. It's so much easier to see and to feel there than anywhere else. And so, yes, I go to the temple. I go often and it's wonderful. And I'm so glad. And that's a great segue into this thing I wanted to share from Elder Holland. Um, In 2008, he gave a CES talk called Lessons from Liberty Jail. And he sets up the talk by explaining how the prophet Joseph Smith and several others were imprisoned at Liberty jail. And he describes at length the fortress that that jail was and the miserable conditions that they experienced and how cold the winter was, how much their families were suffering. It's from this time in the prophet's life that we get doctrine and covenants sections, 121, 122 and 123. When Joseph cries out, Oh God, where art thou? Man, I recognize or I resonate with that statement. Where art thou? So, Elder Holland says, 
Most of us, most of the time, speak of Liberty Jail as a jail or prison, and it certainly was that. But Elder Brigham H. Roberts spoke of the facility as a temple, or more accurately, a prison temple. What does such a title tell us about God's love and teachings, including where and when that love and those teachings are made manifest? And then he says, you can have sacred, revelatory, profoundly instructive experience with the Lord in any, in any situation you are in. Indeed, let me say that even a little stronger. You can have sacred, revelatory, profoundly instructive experience with the Lord in the most miserable experiences of your life, in the worst setting while enduring the most painful injustices when facing the most insurmountable odds and opposition you've ever faced. Every experience can become a redemptive experience if we remain bonded to our Father in heaven through that difficulty. I love those words. And the concept of a prison temple. I think we can, I don't know, as someone who experiences really awful depression sometimes, I don't have to walk into a prison to understand what a prison feels like. And I love being in the temple and the and have had sacred, revelatory, profoundly instructive experiences with the Lord in the temple. But to realize that I can have them when I'm depressed, it's just, uh, it's such a relief. It's such good news, such good news that I am still, I'm still worthwhile. I'm still worthy. I'm still ready for those experiences. And it's, it's just my job to stay ready for those experiences with the Lord, even if I can't get out of bed. That's the last line of my book, even when she can't get out of bed. That's really good. I've never heard those words from Elder Holm from that CS. That was terrific. Um, that brings hope to all of us wherever we are. So keep sharing more. I think you've got a concluding segment here. I do. I just wanted to share. I recently learned about something called the Human Library in Denmark. And the instead of checking out a book, you can check out a person and listen to their story. And I love that concept. The tagline for the library is to unjudge someone. That's profound. It's the concept that Sister Craig talked about in conference about seeing each other close up. Brene Brown talks about it. If you see each other close up, you can't hate each other because you, you can see each other. And I love that concept. And it also speaks to the idea that stories are so important. And I have learned over the last five years how to share mine. But there are stories in all of us everywhere. I think this podcast is a great example of sharing those stories. They're, I love listening to stories about people who are different than me and learning what their experience is like and I would love to know more. I want to go to Denmark just for the library, the human library. But if you are out there 
experiencing mental illness or another significant problem in your life, I just encourage you to reach out. Reach out to someone and tell them your story. Get the help you need. Um, the world is better for all of the stories that we share. Thank you. Love that. More things you'd like to share. If you want to talk about Soraya, I see her on your notes or deliverance of um, Israeli deliverance or any other things you'd like to share. Oh gosh, we could talk about the scriptures for a long time. <laughs> I didn't think we had time. <laughs> I love to study. Um, well, I love to study the scriptures and I love, I've especially noticed lately all of the stories that we're learning in the scriptures. Um, well, I should say all the stories that exist in the scriptures that I am currently learning about. <laughs> but there are lots of stories about really negative things. And we can learn a lot about from these stories about really the negative things. Soraya is on my list because we know not very much about Soraya. We know she was the wife of a prophet. We know that she had four sons in the beginning, two of whom rebelled. We know that she waited for her four sons when they went to get the plates and they took a long time, longer than she thought they should have taken. And she complained. She said, Lehi, where are my kids? We're all going to die in the wilderness. I love that we know that about Soraya. She was a passionate mom. She loved the Lord. And she loved her husband, but she was having a hard time with what they were asking her to do. I love that real, real nitty gritty in the scriptures. We see it in Nephi, just a few chapters, like one book later, his family has fractured. His parents have died. His prophet of the Lord, oh, wretched man that I am, you know, he... How many times have I said that about myself? And a prophet is saying that about himself makes me feel better to know that he was just a human too. <laughs> um, Amulek, when he was serving with Alma and people dug that giant pit and filled it with fire and started throwing the scriptures and people in there. And Alma and Amulek have to go out there and watch. And Amulek says, what if they kill us too? He had this fear. This servant, this missionary had this moment of, I'm afraid. This is really hard. Of course, we know Job and all of the trials that he experienced and there was a time that he's crying out i can't remember the words right now but he's saying he's like complaining what's going on <laughs> he wasn't perfectly handling all of his trials and we think of jesus himself he was abandoned abba father you know where are you this is too hard and then I'm really fascinated by Moses. He was such an interesting man and had his 
good moments and his rough moments, like we all do. I love the concept of deliverance. And Moses was called as a deliverer. That was his earthly calling to save his people. And not just a few people, hundreds of thousands of people and take this physical exodus across the desert with the enemies on their heels. And I think sometimes we tend to think about deliverance as complete removal of the obstacle that we're facing or pulling us out of the situation that we're in. That's deliverance. But that's not always how it looks. Sometimes there's miracles when physical deliverance doesn't happen. Sometimes their burdens are lightened. We see that in the Book of Mormon. Sometimes God's servants are unharmed by fire or wild animals or prisons that can't hold them. That is also deliverance. Moses and the Israelites wandered for 40 years. But what did their deliverance look like? Did they just have deliverance when they left Egypt? Or did they just have deliverance when they got to Canaan? I think there was deliverance all along the way through their wandering. Um, so I've, I have a little list here of some things that happened to Moses and his people that there's kind of a parallel where I have had a different kind of deliverance in my journey through depression. One example is they're taken from bondage in Egypt. Moses had to lead them out. So they physically left. Maybe my deliverance in depression was I felt God's love that day. He directed me. The Israelites crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. I'm able to take my kids to the park. Their enemies were drowned in the Red Sea. I have a happy day or week or month. They were fed with manna. A friend came to my house and had lunch with me. They, or Moses, got water from a rock. Someone reached out to me, sent a text on a terrible day. They were led by day, given light at night. I have a faithful husband who continually picks up the slack. They were, they, the wicked people were destroyed. I'm able to control my negative self-talk, even just for a minute. <laughs> they were made mighty. I felt the spirit. God did all things for them. I'm still breathing. I made it through another day. God sent fiery serpents and prepared a way for healing. I have medication that works. So you see how the deliverance can just look different for everybody. It's not just... Um, complete removal of the obstacle. I would love to be healed. I don't think it's going to happen in this lifetime. I can't wait for the second coming and my perfect body and more importantly, my perfect mind. <laughs> but until then, I know that God will deliver me as I keep my covenants. That's the, that's the connection I found in the scriptures. If you keep your covenants, you qualify for deliverance. That's a great concluding segment. Um, 
I think I learned something there. I've always thought deliverance was, you know, the promised land. And so deliverance for you would be the end of your mental illness. But I think the realities of life is that some of the roads we walk are going to exist throughout the rest of our mortal life. Some listeners may be in the middle of their own terminal illness or the terminal illness of a dear family member and their lives dreams have significantly changed and maybe even shattered. But I love the principle you just taught deliverance all along the way. And that really resonates with me. And I love the way you just went with the parallels between the simple things that happened to your life that were deliverance. It's not a final event. It's an ongoing process. And I think that's beautiful, Heidi. That is a gift to our listeners um, just to see the good along the way and deliverance coming into our lives in the middle of a difficult journey. And for some, you're right. We understand the plan of salvation and deliverance with a big D, capital D, I guess, is the next life where all will be made right. We understand the doctrine of the next life and that mortality is kind of wounding and brutal and not particularly fair. And, um, but that was just a great, um, that makes me think you ought to start a podcast and do Come Follow Me by Heidi Bartle. <laughs> Because um, that was really, uh, you could keep teaching Sunday school because <laughs> that was just terrific. And any other last thoughts that come to your mind before we sign off? I really don't think so. Thank Gosh. you so much. Um, listeners, this is just a terrific story. Take the, you know, we, I tried, and I think Heidi did this. Don't make this your story. This is exactly how your road with mental illness is going to work out, but take the principles that Heidi shared the insights that come into you and your journey. Um, you may be in a sister desert that's not mental illness, but mm-hmm. I think our feeling is take the principles that Heidi shared that can apply to your life um, and the lives of those you are trying to help. Um, and that honors Heidi and her story. And once again, the name of the book is When Mommy Feels Sad, A Mother's Journey Through Depression. We'll link to that in the show notes. So you can, um, it's a terrific book, children's book. And so, um, thank you, Heidi Bartle. Thank you, our listeners. You're doing such a good job of sharing this podcast. Um, the listenership just continues to grow and grow and grow. And you know, you can't donate to this podcast, just a labor of love, but appreciate what you're doing to share the episodes and especially our guests like Heidi that bravely come forward and share their stories. And this is a little bit of creating Zion as we hear all these different stories, and as Heidi said, a story helps connect us with people um, and create um, Zion. So thank you, listeners. This is Richard Osler and Heidi Bartle signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.